Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Canadian History X. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. And all donations in September will be going to the SPCA in the memory of my best pal Boris, who sadly passed away earlier this month. Okay, on with the show. In October 1758, the vessel, known as the Duke William, was traveling across the Atlantic Ocean towards France, loaded with 360 people who had been torn from their home. It was just one of nine other vessels that were all traveling in a convoy. Those on the ship had spent a month sitting off the coast of Canso, Nova Scotia, awaiting departure, but were delayed because of raging foul weather in the area. Now, three days later, in the journey out to sea, the ship had become separated from the others. For two weeks, the Duke William sailed before sighting another ship, and when they did, they came upon the Violet, which was sinking beneath the waves as the Duke William approached. A squall had damaged the vessel on December 11th, and those on the Violet were loaded onto the Duke William. Meanwhile, deep in the hull of the Duke William, crew and passengers pumped out water as the ship had sprung a leak. Captain Nichols recorded the following in his log. We continue in this dismal situation three days, the ship, notwithstanding our efforts, full of water, and expected to sink any minute. Nichols also told those on board they must be content to their fate and submit to Providence. Twice as the ship slowly sank, other ships were seen in the distance, but neither one came to their rescue. Of the three small boats that were aboard the Duke William, designed for cargo, two were lowered into the water, carrying the captain, his crew, and a parish priest. The passengers remained on board. Their leader, Noel Dorian, told the captain that he should save himself and his crew, as the boats could not take them all. The priest saluted Dorian from the safety of his lifeboat. And on December 13, 1758, at 4 p.m., the Duke William sank 97 kilometers off the coast of France. Over 360 people lost their lives, including Dorian, his wife, their five children, their spouses, and over 30 grandchildren. Those 360 people were just a small portion of the 5,000 others who would die in their perilous journey in search of a new home. Now, it's important to note that these individuals didn't leave their homes willingly. They were forced. And it became a landmark moment that would alter the culture of our country forever. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. 
The Acadian expulsion, as it became known, not only changed the culture and history of Canada, it also led to the formation of other cultures elsewhere in the world. If not for the Acadian expulsion, there'd be no New Orleans as we know it. There'd be no French town in Baltimore, no French heritage in Connecticut, possibly even no Mardi Gras. Even the word Cajun comes from the anglicized word for Acadian. From August 10, 1755 to July 11, 1764, 11,500 Acadians were removed from their homes. This represented nearly 81% of the population of Acadians in the Maritimes. So who were the Acadians? That story begins over 100 years earlier in 1604 in a small vibrant colony of Port Royal. Today you know it as Senilopolis Royal near the Bay of Fundy in Nova Scotia. The unique shores of the Bay of Fundy are jagged cliffs shaped by the power of the highest tides in the world. Millions of years of crashing waves have carved out the coastline made of mud flats and freezing cold water. This area is known for its raw nature, refusing to be harnessed. But early settlers certainly tried. They built dikes to tame the high tides and to irrigate the fields for growing hay. The region at the time was also part of New France. It had been claimed by France in 1535 during a second voyage of Jacques Cartier in the name of the French king Francis I. However, France cared little for these settlers, and the Acadians developed an independent mindset for themselves. Rather than fighting against the local indigenous Mi'kmaq nation, they also worked with them and became their allies. For the Acadians, their survival was tied to their cooperation with the local indigenous people. As early as 1626, the two groups were intermarrying, with Mi'kmaq living with the Acadians and vice versa. From 1632 to 1636, there were a number of sailings from the French Atlantic coast to what would be defined as Acadia. This was the area which included many parts of what are now the Canadian Maritime Provinces. But it was not a utopia. Beginning in 1635, Governor Charles de Saint-Denis de Letois, who was a Protestant, launched attacks against Charles de Menudarnay, a Catholic, for control of the territory. The two French governors had been appointed to the area, and they started what has been described as the Acadian Civil War. Both had been granted territory by King Louis XIV, but he had drawn the territories in a geographically uninformed manner, and the two territories overlapped. The Civil War would last for about a decade, until Donnay expelled Letois from the area. The war left hundreds dead, and in the end it was all for nothing, for Donnay died in 1650. Three years later, Letois, his rival, married his widow. For nearly the next century, control over the Acadian territory would transfer back and forth between various European powers. From 1654 to 1667, they were under the control of the English. Then, on July 31, 1667, they fell back under the control of the French with the signing of the Treaty of Breda. By this point, there were 300 Acadians living in the area, consisting of 60 families. In 1674, the Dutch conquered Acadia and named the region New Holland. The Dutch would leave the region just four years later in 1678, and it would again return to the French. And over the next few decades, the Acadians moved out from Port Royal to create new settlements in the region. In 1713, the land once again transferred power to the British. A decade and a half later, in 1730, the British asked the Acadians to remain neutral in any conflict between Britain and France. And while France and Britain continued to jockey back and forth for control, the Acadians, for the most part, stayed out of European matters in the region. 
France, however, established the Louisbourg Fortress on Cape Breton Island. This led the English to establish a naval base at Halifax. When, in 1751, Fort Bourgeois was established by the French in New Brunswick, the British built Fort Lawrence close by. European monarchies were nearly constantly at war at this time, always fighting each other. And in June 1755, Fort Bourgeois fell to the English, and inside, 270 Acadian militia were found to be among the troops. British Governor Charles Lawrence saw this as a violation of the agreement from four decades earlier. And little did the Acadians know that this would set the scene for the Acadian expulsion that would come just a few years later. One can associate the residential school system with tuberculosis and tuberculosis with the residential school system. We had indigenous parents, communities, students, church employees, teachers, and individuals who are part of Indian Affairs, like Dr. Peter Henderson Bryce, giving their critiques in their own time. People hid when the tuberculosis screening came to their communities because they knew that the result of getting screened was that they, they could be taken away. I believe a lot of people were used, government officials who just thought they were doing the right thing. They were doing what they were told. First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples have already told our story. It's now time to tell the other side of the story. We need to take a serious look at the parts of the system from the past that we may be replicating today. I'm Maya Foster Sanchez, and this is the story of a national crime. Coming this fall, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a month after the fall of Fort Bourgeois, Governor Charles Lawrence met with Acadian delegates, pressing them to accept an oath of allegiance to Britain. The delegates, having enjoyed relative independence for over a century, naturally refused. Acadians had been mostly left alone by the fighting European monarchies and had their own unique culture and customs, and they weren't too keen on taking sides now. Lawrence and his council were supported by the new English settlers who wanted those rich Acadian lands. Now remember that while fighting occurred elsewhere, Acadians had mostly spent a century building infrastructure and cultivating the lands they had settled. Now, those were highly coveted, and with the area now being a British colony, many questioned how their new government would consider allowing enemies to occupy the land. On September 5th, 1755, all males over the age of nine were told to gather at the Grand Prix Church. This was the center of an Acadian settlement, and it was in that location that Governor Charles Lawrence proclaimed that your land and tenements, cattle of all kinds, and livestock of all sorts are forfeited to the crown, with all of your effects saving your money and household goods, and you yourselves to be removed from this province. The expulsion of the Acadians had begun. Charles Morris would be the man behind the devious plan. He was an army officer who served on the Nova Scotia Council and was the Chief Justice of the Nova Scotia Supreme Court and the Surveyor General for over 32 years. Born in Boston, he eventually made his way to the colony, and in his travels he produced maps and gathered information about the Acadian colony during its surveys, which were later used by the military authority in Halifax. It was on a warm day on August 10, 1755, when the Acadians filed in the church for Sunday services. 
As prayers went on inside, Morris had the churches surrounded, and as people filed out, as many men as possible were captured. And while the men were rounded up, the dikes were breached, and the crops and houses were burned to the ground. For the men who refused, their families were threatened at the end of bayonets. By the end of supper, 1,100 Acadians had been removed from their lands and transported to South Carolina, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. But not all British officers were happy with the orders to deport the Acadians. Colonel John Winslow would read the deportation order, but would state that despite it being his duty, it was disagreeable to his nature, make, and temper. He would say, It is not my business to animadvert, but to obey such orders as I receive. Essentially, he used the phrase many others have used when faced with committing atrocities. He was simply following orders. Meanwhile, the Acadians would not go quietly into the night. They instead raged, raged against the dying of the light. Joseph Broussard would launch a guerrilla warfare campaign against the British with the help of his allies, the Micmac. Many Acadians also escaped into nearby forests and made their way to New France. This forced British forces to spend the next five years hunting for them. In the spring of 1756, a wood-gathering party was ambushed by Acadians and Micmac and nine of the party were killed. That same year, 100 Acadians ambushed 13 soldiers near Fort Edward. Six men escaped, but the rest were taken prisoner. A year later, that same band of Acadians and Micmac raided Fort Edward and Fort Cumberland, killing two men and taking two others prisoner. These raids continued for years. In 1758, 40 Acadian and Micmac ambushed five British soldiers on patrol and killed them. The raids were bad enough that most in the Lunenburg Peninsula had abandoned their farms and by the end of May 1758 had retreated to the protection of town fortifications. For those who did not retreat from their farms, they took their lives into their own hands. From July 13, 1758 to April 20, 1759, 14 soldiers and settlers were killed, including one child. On April 4, 1759, Acadians captured a transport ship and then used it to attack the vessel Moncton, which they chased for five hours in the Bay of Fundy. But as much as they fought, they were no match for the British. Over the course of the next eight years, 11,500 Acadians would be deported out of the region to make way for British settlers. And for those who were pushed out of their homes, the hardships were just beginning. While we think of the Acadian expulsion as one long thing, it was actually conducted in many campaigns. The first was 1755 and was known as the Bay of Fundy Campaign. It was followed by the Cape Sable Campaign one year later. Cape Sable Island is a flat, wooded island off the southwestern tip of Nova Scotia. It's connected to the mainland by a causeway on the north side and the waters of the Barrington Bay to the east. The Micmac would often hunt seals off the coast of the island. In April 1756, Major Jebediah Preble and his New England troops on their return to Boston would raid a settlement near Port Latour and captured 72 men, women, and children. Two years later, Major Henry Fletcher and the 35th British Regiment blocked the Cape and troops entered, eventually capturing 100 Acadians while another 130 Acadians and Micmac escaped. In September of 1758, the British raided the island with warships and 325 soldiers to hunt down and find the Acadians. By October 28th, women and children were captured and sent to George's Island in Halifax Harbour, while men were forced to destroy their village before they too were sent to the island for deportation. During this campaign, nearly 500 Acadians were deported. After the French lost the siege of Louisbourg, 
which was a pivotal operation in the Seven Years' War in 1758, it ended the French colonial era in Atlantic Canada. And this led to the subsequent British campaign to capture Quebec in 1759 and the remainder of French North America the following year. This meant that thousands of Acadians were deported from Prince Edward Island and Cape Breton Island. The campaign to remove Acadians from Prince Edward Island would see the largest percentage of deaths of the Acadians. The two ships I introduced you to in the beginning of the episode, the Duke William and Violet, were both part of this campaign. Of the 3,100 Acadians deported after the fall of Louisbourg in 1758, 53% would die by drowning or disease. That same year, the Gulf of St. Lawrence campaign started. It involved Brigadier General James Wolfe, the future hero of the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. His force spent September of 1758 clearing out villages and destroying 200 fishing vessels while taking 200 people prisoner. In September 1759, Colonel Robert Monckton led a force of 1,150 British soldiers to destroy Acadian settlements throughout what is now New Brunswick. And the British started at the mouth of the St. John River and moved up the river, destroying communities as they went. That same month, the force burned Point St. Anne's to the ground. The town's population was first recorded in 1698 and showed that there were 38 French settlers made up mostly of families and their households. Having received their grant from the colonial government of New France and Quebec in 1692, they had managed to clear 118 acres of land by the time the census was taken. Other French families had also begun to populate the area, in particular the Godin family, which would play a prominent role in the events of 1759. Precy Joseph Godin wrote an account of the massacre for the French government in 1785, and he stated the British captain, Moses Hazen, tied his grandchildren and their mothers to trees, and they were brutally beaten by Hazen's men before being scalped and killed. Golden also confirmed that the Acadians had begun deserting the river the moment they received word the British were establishing military presence at the mouth of the St. John. There were about 90 families established in the area of Point St. Anne, many of whom had fled after the deportation had begun, and by the time Hazen and his men arrived, they had burned 147 buildings, two churches, and various barns and stables. They also killed all the hogs, five head of cattle, and 212 horses. Through all of this, the British continued to deport the Acadians across the continent and over the Atlantic Ocean. Many were put into British colonies where they were hoped they would assimilate, while others were sent to France and French colonies in the Caribbean. The first wave of expulsions mostly sent the Acadians to New England. In Maryland, 1,000 Acadians settled and lived in a section of Baltimore that would become known as Frenchtown. Often persecuted by the British, Irish Catholics in the community also helped the Acadians by taking orphan children into their homes. Connecticut took in 700 Acadians, and like Maryland, the Acadians were made to feel welcome and aided in their settlement. Many colonies, though, were not informed that hundreds of Acadians would be arriving, and they suddenly found themselves dealing with a flood of souls looking for shelter. Various communities refused entry, and the Acadians were forced to wander until they could find a home for themselves. In Pennsylvania, 500 Acadians were forced to spend months on their vessel in port, while in Virginia, they were refused entry because no notice of their arrival had been given. They were detained in Williamsburg, where hundreds died of malnutrition and disease. Those that survived were sent to Britain and kept as prisoners until the Treaty of Paris in 1763. Those that had offered the most resistance to the British were sent to the Carolinas and Georgia. Over 1,400 Acadians were shipped there and forced to work on plantations. 
Threats of the Acadians fleeing to French-controlled regions like New France worried the British. As a result, the second wave of expulsion sent the Acadians to France. About 3,000 Acadians were sent to France, while the Acadians sent to Britain were housed in crowded warehouses or were rampant with disease. Despite popular belief, the Acadians were not shipped to Louisiana directly. The Acadian dysphoria, exiled from the only place they called home, were sent to new places, and many were unhappy in their new homes and moved on. The area that is known as Louisiana had been a popular slave trade route for the French, and they had a colony there. By the 1760s, the Spanish had banned importation of slaves from Haiti to Louisiana. Their concern was that the stories of life on the island would outrage Louisiana's slave population to the point of rebellion. And by the time of the French Revolution, thousands of Frenchmen fled France for Haiti, but found their island hostile and a fertile breeding ground for revolution. Slaves rose up against their masters and the free people of color. So great was the turmoil that the colonists, their families, and many blacks fled Haiti for Louisiana. The Spanish ban on Haitian slaves and their territories was still in force, so all the refugees brought with them was money and the possessions they could carry. Many were from influential and powerful families that were able to settle in Louisiana fairly easily. As many Acadians searched for a new place to settle, the French influence of the area felt familiar, and they were drawn to the area to settle, eventually evolving into the Cajun culture that is now a central part of what we know of Louisiana. And while the Acadians were pushed off their land, and the cultural makeup of the area was changed forever, they would be allowed to return a few years later in 1764. Those who chose to return settled mainly in New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Cape Breton, but the British prohibited them from resettling their lands and villages in what would become Nova Scotia. Before the American Revolutionary War, the Crown moved in Protestant European immigrants to the former Acadian communities and farmland, and after the war it made land grants in Nova Scotia to Loyalists. The British policy was to establish a majority culture of Protestant religions and to assimilate Acadians with the local population that they had resettled. In the end, the Acadian expulsion proved to be completely unnecessary from a military perspective, and later generations would deem it to be an inhumane act and one of the many dark chapters in our history. In December 2003, Governor General Adrian Clarkson, who had succeeded the first Acadian descendant, Governor General Romain Leblanc, acknowledged the expulsion in a ceremony, but did not apologize for it. She did, however, designate July 28th as a day of commemoration of the Great Upheaval, and on December 13th, on the anniversary of the day the Duke William sunk, People honor all those lost on Acadian Remembrance Day. That's the end of the story of the Acadian expulsion. But the Duke William is not the only way this time in history is remembered. Our ancestors came here from France to build a better life. We lived here happily for generations. until the British decided they wanted our land. The men were called to a meeting and then imprisoned. They demanded we swear an oath to their king and took everything regardless. We were forced from Acadie, the only home we knew. Mon Acadie n'existe trop plus. No! 
From 1755 to 1763, over 10,000 Acadians were ripped from their homeland. Despite this, Acadian culture endures in Atlantic Canada. This is the forest primeval, the murmuring pines and the hemlocks, bearded with moss and in garments green, indistinct in the twilight. Stand like druids of eld, with voices sad and prophetic. Stand like harpers whore, with beards that rest on their bosoms. Loud from its rocky caverns, the deep-voiced neighboring ocean speaks and in accents disconsolate answers the will of the forest. This is the prelude to the epic poem by the American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Evangeline, A Tale of Acadia. Written in English and published in 1847, the poem follows an Acadian girl named Evangeline and her search for her lost love Gabriel, set during the time of the expulsion of the Acadians. The idea for the poem came from Longfellow's friend Nathaniel Hawthorne, man who became Longfellow's most famous work in his lifetime and remains one of his most popular and enduring works. And if you have little ones at home, you might remember, Evangeline is also referenced in the 2009 Disney film The Princess and the Frog, where an Acadian firefly named Raymond falls in love with Evangeline, who appears as a star. And following his death, they are reunited and appear side by side in the night sky. Thank you for joining me on Canadian History X. Information for this episode comes from Biography, Canadian Encyclopedia, Maclean's, Wikipedia, Ottawa Citizen, CBC, Historica Canada, and the Government of Nova Scotia. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of producer Dila Velasquez. Audio design and production by Rob Johnson. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help others find these amazing stories, and there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. And we love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com. And don't forget to stop by my website and social media. I've included all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.